Oh 
sing a song that's one day old or a thousand years old. They're all declaring your truth. That you are the truth, the life. You are the one we adore. You are the solid rock on which we stand. You're our vision, our guide, our strength, our sword, our battle shield. You showed that ultimate truth, that ultimate love. 
by sending your son to bear our sins on Calvary. So we can stand here and declare how marvelous, how wonderful is your unfailing and amazing love. That you, our king, would die for us. So God, we come before you this morning declaring these truths. In a time of such trial and challenge that people are going through things, we know that you are our solid rock. You are the foundation on which we can stand. So God, we pray for this church. We pray for everyone in here. We pray for each church that is declaring your praise and your truth across this town. God, may you bless them, encourage them, challenge them. Spirit, may you speak to their hearts. And in this room, may you speak to us challenge us, heal us, keep us healthy, God, in these strange times. God, we love your name. We love praising you and hearing from your word as we're going to this morning. May you be exalted and glorified. Spirit, may you lead us and challenge us and change us towards more and more sanctification as we strive after you this morning. We give you all the praise and glory for it belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Welcome to church this morning. Grab a seat. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. I kid you not, one of those songs is a thousand years old. Probably. It's definitely in a book in the 14th century, so it's at least like 600 years old. But it might have been written in the 6th century, which would make it 1,500 years old. So I rounded to a thousand. I hope that's cool. It's also Irish. No jokes, please. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to church. My name is Gary. I'm on the worship team here. I'm on staff here. We give you a very warm welcome. Uh, on behalf of everyone, Kevin is again out this week. Um, for those who don't know, he's our pastor, and he is on vacation in Colorado or making his way home. Um, so if you are here this morning, we give you a very warm welcome. You're in for a treat. Uh, we have Joel sharing with us. This so morning. last week, we traversed thousands and thousands of years of God's great story, and I it's been a tough two weeks to prepare for these because I'm like, I'm pulling my hair out and trying to figure out what am I going to include? How am I going to do this? And I feel like I've taken on something that's way beyond what I can do. But nonetheless, I attempted to go back and bring us through thousands of years of God's grand story. One reason I did that is because we live in a world that says there are no meta narratives. There, there is no big picture story. And because of that, you can each have whatever you want to have as being right. We can all hold to whatever we want to have. There's no overarching true story here, no bigger picture that we're progressing towards. Uh, and that's the, the, the worldview in our day and age. And it's just flat out wrong. Because there is a grand story. There is a big picture narrative. And it's God's story. And we would be remiss if we don't periodically zoom back out and look at the whole story and try to piece it together as he would want us to. Um, last week, we looked at the creation. 
We looked at all the angels that sang for glory when he laid the foundation of the earth. And we talked about the rebellion of the serpent and how he swept away a third of the angels with him. And then we talked about the fall of man and how man fell into sin and captivity uh, to sin. And then we talked about the promised head crusher, the one that would come from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. As, Jesus, as we know, that came through in Christ, and as we see it in Genesis 3, as the Lord speaks, and we, and we see that, that early prophetic mystery begin to be laid forth, that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. And then we moved through the annals of, in the, of history and the Israelite people, and we saw that line of the head crusher became more clear as, as Abraham was chosen, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then it narrowed, narrowed down to the tribe of Judah, uh, and then it, the, David's line was, was called out. And we saw the serpent wage war to try to, you know, mix and destroy and, and subvert the Lord's attempts to bring this about. But nonetheless, the Lord got it done. And the king came and he dealt a great blow to the serpent who tried to deceive and trick and tempt him there when he came the first time. Um, and that was a first incredible climax to God's great story. The coming, the first coming of the king when he came to be man's redeemer, to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins. But there's more to the story. We, we talked a little bit about how then the door was open to the Gentiles. Now Israel rejected their Messiah and so the Gentiles were brought in. And then we said, but there's more than that. There's a big picture that, that we haven't had a chance to even get into yet until today. And that's where I went ahead, which is the second and third great chapters uh, or culminations or climaxes of God's incredible story. And really, I was thinking about how much anticipation we should have. We should be like children before Christmas awaiting the presents or this, this young boy looking in the, through the oven, smelling the aroma of the chocolate chip cookies as it goes through the house. And you're anxiously awaiting the day when those cookies are, or the time when the cookies are done and you can dive in. Or when the presents show up and you can dive in under the tree at Christmas time. We should, too should be eagerly watchful and waiting for the culmination of God's grand story. Now, as I turn today and we begin to look at these topics, I have to lay a couple ground rules and just lay some foundation here. And, and I have to do this because these are, these are big, big topics. One that I'll say is that I have to approach this with a very humble heart. I just have to flat out just tell you as honestly as I can, I actually don't know how all of these prophecies fit together. I have sort of a way that I have looked at him and think, man, it sort of appears that that sounds a lot like this guy, and that sort of certainly sounds like he's repeating a theme here. And I sort of have tried to piece things together, but please understand, I actually don't have all this figured out. Um, and, and I want to go on the record here as we start that, stating that I don't have it figured out. So <laughs> hopefully you, we're all in this boat together. Uh, the second thing is we need to say something about the nature of prophecy. We need to understand that God's prophecies uh, can be shown, we don't have time to do so, but they can be shown to have partial and then complete fulfillment. So the idea of multiple times where you can see a partial fulfillment and then a full fulfillment, or an, a type is presented and then an archetype shows up as the paramount example or completion. 
You could look at something like Solomon was a type promised under the Davidic covenant to be one that would be a son to David and the Lord would be his father. And But yet we know that there's a bigger archetype of the son of God who sits on the throne of David forever. And that's just one example. There's many others in the Bible that show that sort of picture. Uh, and therefore you have to be careful when you look at prophecies and say, I think that one for sure has already happened. No, that one hasn't happened. No, this one for sure has happened. Especially with prophecies that have attributes that when you're reading, like, I'm not sure that has happened. The minute you say that, you probably should realize this could very well be pointing to something bigger, like a, a grand fulfillment down the road. So you have to be careful with that. A third thing I want to say is I approach the Bible whenever I study it with what I would call a literal interpretation or a natural reading of the text, meaning that I believe there is a real truth that's being conveyed, a real literal truth that the Lord is wanting to convey. It does not mean he doesn't use symbolic language from time to time, but those symbols are meant to point us to a real truth. Jesus said, I am the door. Was he a physical wood door? No. Was there a real reality, a real literal truth that he was trying to convey to him? Yes. That truth was he was the way and is the way, the truth and the life, the only way to the Father. Um, and so that's how I generally approach Scripture. And as a result of that, you know, you look at these prophecies, and there's, as you may or may not be aware, there's multiple views of God's prophetic calendar I tend to lean more towards a, a, a more of a futurist view, and I'm just going to get that out and say that. You'll see that as we dive into this. But I look at these as sort of literal things that he's wanting to teach us about as we open these prophecies. A fourth thing I want to say before we get started is the Lord in the New Testament presents both the unity of Israel and the Gentiles, but also presents a picture of distinction between the, the Gentiles and Israel. You have to see this. It's absolutely paramount that you see this. No different than in the Godhead, you have the God, God is one and yet three distinct persons. Or in marriage, you become one and yet you're still distinct husband and wife. So too here, we find a distinction made between Israel and the Gentiles. In Paul, when he gets to Romans 9, 10, and 11, his heart is pouring out as you read it for his people Israel. He's writing to a Gentile church, but he's telling them, he goes, man, if I could just turn my kinsmen, the Israelites, back, I'd, do, I'd be willing to be accursed, he said, if I could just somehow persuade them back. And he goes on and said, but don't let it fool you guys over there in Rome as the Gentile church. Has God rejected his people, the Israelites? And he says, no, may it never be. And he gets down in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, and he says, I do not want you Roman Gentile church, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then in 28, he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, his Israelite kinsmen, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's promises to Israel that we read about last week are irrevocable. 
That's why when you read Jeremiah 31 or 33 is repeated twice, God says if the sun and the moon, if that cycle was to end and stop, then Israel would cease to be a nation before me. That's how serious God is about his promises and recognition of Israel. Um, And so we have to see that, that God maintains this distinction, but also presents a a unified uh, picture as well. But we want to see the distinction. Now, as we dive in, I actually want to start by diving into Israel. And I just, I'll say, I'm sort of glad that Gary mentioned that he didn't know how old that song was, because it's sort of like what we're about to read. There's a lot of things in here that I don't, I don't know. And I realized that as I did, went through last week and the anticipation built and the anticipation built, I had people like, I want to hear the end of this story. I want to hear, I realized I've sort of set myself up for a, <laughs> a potential major fall because there's so much to wrap your head around and, and dive into with the, with the conclusion. And yet I'm going to try to do so as best I can. And the way I'm going to do it is by starting to look at Israel. We'll then go look at the church. Um, so when we look at Israel and we want to say, well, what's the future for Israel? Started long ago when he made these promises about the land and about a nation and about a king. What's the future for this people, Israel? Well, in Daniel chapter 9, we have a vision, or sorry, a, a, a situation where Daniel is on his knees in prayer. He's begging the Lord to forgive the nation of Israel because they have sinned greatly against him. And he recognizes that. And so he lays out this great confession. And it's an incredible section on prayer, if you ever read the beginning of Daniel 9. The reason he's doing this is because he's been reading his Bible. And when he read his Bible, he saw in Jeremiah that it it told him very clearly that there would be 70 years of exile, and then the Lord would begin restoring Israel. And guess what? Daniel's been in the exile, and it's about the 70th year, and he begins saying, I need to call out to the Lord. The time is now to begin calling on the Lord, turning to him so he can move us back to the land. And that's the picture we find in in Daniel chapter 9. And while he's pouring out his supplications to the Lord and his request, the Lord sends him a message uh, through the messenger Gabriel to tell him the future for his people and for Daniel's city. That would be Jerusalem. And this is what he says to Daniel, 9.24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It, speaking about Jerusalem, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out 
on the one who makes desolate. There's a lot of complexities here. And it's amazing how much is packed into so few verses. But we see that the Lord went well beyond Daniel's questions about just the 70-year exile. He takes him to a, a great picture. And the reason we know it's an incredible picture is because he, he says will, will be accomplished during these 70 weeks. During these 70 weeks, these 77s really is the wording, there are a number of things that will happen. There will be a finishing of transgression. There will be a ma making an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. I'm of the belief when I look at these and I look at what's transpired over, over history with Israel, some of them have clearly happened, and the Lord in his first coming have, has, is fulfilled. But not all of them. Israel does not walk in everlasting righteousness right now. There's still a rebellious people that stubbornly refuses to reject their king. The most holy place in Jerusalem, I'm not sure I would call that really anointed right now, as I see a mosque sitting on top of a crumb, crumbled ruins of an ancient temple. Um, and so I look at it and I say, it appears that some of these things haven't been completed. Uh, he goes on to explain this timetable, right? After he gives these six things that are going to be accomplished. And he says, he's, he maps out when the Messiah will be cut off after seven sevens and then 62 sevens. And we don't have time to dive into it to the nth degree. But the scholars that have, who have mapped out the history from Daniel's time period to Christ, clearly see that these 69 total weeks, the 7 plus the 62, can be mapped out with incredible accuracy to the coming of, of the, our Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. Uh, so we can see that this is a view leading quite a ways forward from Daniel's perspective. We also find out as we study it that these sevens are represented of seven years. And that's how when you look at the 69 weeks, the seven and the 62, that you see it map out to Jesus's day to a T. But if you also notice, there's a 70th final seven year period that is sort of separated from the 69, the first seven and the 62. And he dives in and he tells them, that at the end time, that one will come who will make a covenant of some type, perhaps a peace covenant. And then in the middle of the seven years, at the three and a half year mark, he'll put a stop to sacrifices. And then will come one who makes desolate, a word that means to be awestruck, to be stupefied, to be appalled. And he'll do so with abominations, detestable things, idolatry, and worship. And we'll see as we look into this that he will draw people to worship him and he'll blaspheme the Lord. Uh, and ultimately it says, and, and Gabriel says, he will bring utter destruction. Just make a note of that. He will bring destruction. Now I believe this is a key passage in the prophetic puzzle for Israel's future. The 70th seven, along with all, the, all, all of the, seven, the 70 sevens. To move Israel now from centuries of apostasy and sin against the Lord back to a position wherein Israel will walk in everlasting righteousness. They will look to their king and the most holy place will be anointed as we'll look in a second in Joel. Now, Gabriel's message ended there, but the Lord's word gives us more detail. 
And he does it by, by giving pieces here, a little piece there, and you have to make the word the apple of your eye and be willing to dive in and make, take some notes. Get a notebook from Walmart. Start writing it out. Map it out. Look, how does that fit? How does that? And then you begin to see things unfold. Because if we were to go over to Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, we find prophecies that give us a glimpse into kingdoms of the earth that lead up to the kingdom, the final kingdom that will crush all others and a kingdom that will last forever. And this prophecy we see in Daniel 2, it comes initially through Nebuchadnezzar, right? You remember this story. It's just a narrative story. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He challenges people to try to interpret it or even tell them this dream, and no one's able to find it. He's about to go kill all of his wise men, including Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they pray, and they pray, to ask God to help, and then the, and then the Lord gives Daniel the key. He says Daniel gets the understanding. And the vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar saw was this. In it, well, he had this dream about this great statue with a head of gold and a chest of silver and a waist of bronze and legs of iron and then two feet and ten toes where there was iron mixed with clay at the bottom. Now, when we look at this, Daniel provided some interpretations to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. That's your kingdom. That's Babylon. And then he said, the next two that come down, the silver and the bronze, that represents two other kingdoms that will come after yours. Not as great and not as grand, but nonetheless, some powerful world, world uh, uh, kingdoms that will come after you. And then the iron one that's quite powerful will, be, will, will crush the other preceding three kingdoms like iron. And then he says, and then there were the two feet and the ten toes. And they're a mixture of clay and iron. And it'll be a divided kingdom. And it'll be split up and there'll be ten kings. And in the days of those kings, there will be a kingdom set up unlike all others. Because if you recall, Nebuchadnezzar saw a big stone not cut by human hands that came in and crushed this statue. And that, Daniel said, was God's kingdom. There would not come from a human agency, but it would crush and put an end to all these kingdoms on the earth. Now, amazingly, the message that we saw in Daniel 2 right here, it's repeated. And whenever the Lord repeats and expands, you should probably say, I may need to read and pay attention to this. Because in this case, Daniel himself now has a dream and a vision. And in this dream, Daniel sees a lion, which we're told is representative of Babylon. Then he sees a bear, which we're told is representative of Persia. Then Daniel sees a leopard, which we're told is representative of Greece and Alexander the Great. Then he sees this fierce beast that he doesn't even put an animal name to it. And he says it crushed all the preceding beasts. And it was different than the beast before it because guess what? It had ten horns, a lot like the ten toes. And from the ten horns came a little horn that was uttering these great boasts and Daniel looked and he saw then that the Ancient of Days took his seat on his throne. And books were opened. The time for judgment came. And in 711 he says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the little horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Then on the clouds, one like the Son of Man, Daniel saw, who came before the Ancient of Days, and he was given dominion and a kingdom that will never end. 
Now, Daniel was given an interpretation of this vision. And he, and, and he was told what the little horn represented, that it represented a future king that would arise from ten kings, and that, he, that this future king will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And get this, all the dominions will serve and obey him only. That's an incredible picture of what the Lord is going to do as he sets up the ultimate and final culmination of his kingdom. And you can see that Daniel saw these repeated visions now between Nebuchadnezzar's and this one, that we had four empires, Babylon, Persia and the Medes, followed by Greece, then Rome, then splitting into multiple kingdoms, and then one that would come from ten kings who will come and he will be filled with the arrogance of man. He will speak out against God and his saints. And in 1136 of Daniel, it says, then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. And always remember that this time where he will prosper will be only allowed for a time and then times, that's two more, plus a half a time. That adds up to three and a half times. If we put that with Daniel's 70th seven, if you recall, there was a seven-year period. And halfway through that 70, seven-year period, something was going to happen. One was going to come on the wing of abominations who would make desolate, and he would bring, remember, utter destruction. And we, we look at this one, and it's hard not to see that this three and a half time period here for this one will come, could very well align with what Daniel's talking about in the 70th seven. And so I believe that that will happen, that there will be one who will do this. But I also believe that that is then the time that the Lord will bring in his, king, his kingdom because he will judge this insolent world leader. And then the kingdom of Christ and his saints will come and all dominions will serve him. Now, it's critical to remember as we do this that the time that's in view here when this evil and boastful world leader is on the scene, that's central to the 70th seven, right? Which was given to Daniel's people, to Daniel's city. It's part of the prophetic calendar for the nation of Israel. And we have to remember that. And you'd say, well, where do, how does it end for Israel? Because it sure sounds like things are sort of getting pretty heated and not going real well in this 70th seven. And that would be true. But then at the end of the book of Daniel, as Daniel, you remember, he's asked for the Lord's clarity concerning his people. Finally, the Lord gives him a great and awesome picture. Where does it turn around? In 12.1, it says, now at that time, and I'll add during the time of this insolent world leader, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, he will arise 
and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Daniel, everyone who is found written in the book, get this, they will be rescued. The rescuer will come from Zion. And Michael the archangel, set aside to be the prince of Israel, the guard, the watcher over Israel, will take action. He will stand up for the people, for his people. And the king will, as we see, we'll see in a second, will return. And I believe you'd say, well, why is God doing this? Why would God want to take Israel through all this time of trouble and turmoil? Well, he's moving Israel to repentance. He's moving Israel to a position of willingness to accept him as their king. They didn't accept him before. And even today, I have friends that are Jewish. They do not accept their king. But there will come a time when their knee will bow and they will have to cry out to the Lord and the Lord will respond. I know this is the case because Zechariah says, it will come about in that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Do you see this? It's a time when the, the center of world persecution will come and face Israel. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, get this, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. That's the Lord moving his people to a spirit of grace and supplication. That's what Daniel was doing in chapter 9, making his supplications known before the Lord, honor, acknowledging their sin, crying out as they weep bitterly in this situation. And then you know what the Lord does? He'll respond. I know this because in Joel 3, 12, it says, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. And mark this now. So Jerusalem will be holy. And strangers will pass through it no more. The most holy place will be anointed. The Lord will rule and come to Jerusalem. And it will be set apart as holy. And as, Rome, as Paul says in Romans 11, speaking about Israel, he says, all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what I believe awaits Israel. A time of great distress, 
followed by the time of the Lord's return, a time followed by the Lord judging the earth and leading his people to victory. Now, I'm going to pause and give an illustration here because we're talking about a lot of things that have to do with things that I believe are yet future. And I think, by the way, when we see these things unfold, we will no longer be arguing about whether we've perhaps missed the, the Lord or maybe that passage has already happened or not. It will be clear, like the, like the sign of the Son of Man, he says, will be like the lightning flashing from the east to the west. But as we look at these passages, and we know we're dealing with the prophecies about future events, we have to stop and remember that man, while man may think we've got things figured out, and we may think we've got the, 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 the future in, in view, only the Lord really does. And my illustration is this. We have Gantt charts where I work. We, we, we hire people to make these charts. I, how many people have seen these Gantt charts? Like sort of Microsoft project type of thing? Yeah, common thing. This is what we do. We sit down, we say, we're going to spend a year and a half designing an audio amplifier. How long is it going to take you, Joel, and your guys to go do this? We start mapping out every task. We can end up with like nine or 900 items or 1,000 tasks over here. And then slowly we begin trying to map it out. And the funny thing, though, that happens is you begin, you start to realize the minute it's done, you realize the reality is, guys, it's probably already going to be inaccurate. One day into it, you begin realizing, now we're already starting to slip a little. And that's already changing. That got done a little earlier. And I'll say this year, the 2020 Gantt charts for us have been blown completely out of the water because something called COVID-19 came along. And while we thought we knew the, the road ahead, well, we thought we'd plan the road ahead and we knew the future. We were going to spend this month working on this thing and this month working on this. Thing. The Lord came in and allowed it to just be blown to smithereens because man doesn't know the future. And then you'd say, well, if COVID, that was one thing, right? But I'm here to tell you there was, there was more than that. We got hit with the great flood in Ozark, we called it, where a water main burst in our 155,000 square foot facility and flooded all night until driver, people driving by saw water just pouring out of the building. And there was two to three inches of water over the entire 155,000 square, square foot facility. That's a lot of water. That has a way of changing your schedules here. As they came in and had to tear down all the drywall, take all of our engineers out of our out of our labs, and we're still shut down today. So you try to plan, you try to look into the crystal ball and plan it all out, but man doesn't know how it's going to go. Uh, and so we have to be careful to turn to the Lord and say, what is it the Lord wants us to see is going to happen? And now let's shift our attention to say, what about the church? What about the Gentiles? And as we do this, I want to start with this part of the little study or investigation with a couple of key truths, but one that I want to start lead off with is that the church of God is not destined for wrath. I can state that with, with fact, because 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, for God has not destined us, speaking to the New Testament church, for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, he tells him to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who, get this, rescues us from the wrath to come. And Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. The picture we have here is we are not destined to undergo God's 
hand of wrath. That's not my opinion, folks. That's just what the New Testament teaches. Now, where, where we get into some interesting discussions is how will he save us from the wrath? Now, I'll give you two possible reasons. They're both very plausible, and there are good people on both sides of this. There are some that say the rapture event, the harpazo event, the, the catching up into the air as the Lord returns in, in, in the First Thessalonians that we read about last week, that that will happen early on or even at the beginning prior to the Great Tribulation. For the, we've been reading about this time of when things really go downhill on the earth. The, earth, the, the church will be raptured and pulled out of that. And then we will return later, as we'll see here in a second. But nonetheless, that's one possible theory. The other reality that I want to lay before you, and I'm not telling you that I have one strong leaning or the other. I actually sort of, I was, we, uh, Susan and I were talking about, I sort of go back and forth. But here's another possibility. Has the Lord proven in times past when he's pouring out judgment on another nation that even though his people are right in the midst of that nation whom he's judging, that he's able to somehow save them through it? Can you think of a time when the Lord poured out plagues on a great empire and right in the middle of that, he had a million of his own people right there and there was light in their homes, even though there's darkness everywhere else. Now, that's another possibility. I'm not going to claim to know for sure which one it is, so I'm just going to leave that with you. You can study that out further. Now, a second point I want to make about the church is we know that the Lord will return for us in the end. We saw this last week in 1 Thessalonians, that in the end the Lord will descend with the trumpet and the shout of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then those that are alive will ascend to meet him in the air, it says. We, we, we looked at that. And Paul told us two things that must take place prior to, to the, our gathering to him and the Lord's return. He says in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, go on to the next slide here, uh, Tracy says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is the Lord's coming and our gathering to him, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And mark this again. He's called the son of destruction. And here's the picture Paul paints. He's a person who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Almost the same wording as you see in Daniel 11 and 12 speaking about this, this end-time man of lawlessness. Um, so that's a picture that we know will happen Thus, I believe there will be this, this individual will arise. Uh, and Paul's letters tell us, watch for these two things, the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Those have to happen prior to the Lord's return and our gathering to him. Now, third thing I want to look at regarding the church is the church was given a prophet. Israel had plenty of prophets, but guess what? The church had a prophet, and he's called John the Revelator. He was sent with a great revelation that if you were to study the book of Revelation, you'll, find, you'll see who it's addressed to, the churches. You'll see it's addressed to his bondservants. But the intro, as well as the last chapter, it's bookmarked by calls out to the church. So we too should say, well, seems like we should take a listen to what the prophet that came and spoke to the church had to say. Um, 
Now, when we do so, we'll see that chapter 1 opens, Paul, or John sees this incredible vision of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands that represent the churches, holding the seven stars in his right hand, which represent the messengers to the churches. Then he begins sending messages to the seven churches. And I told you last week that I believe in Revelation 7 represents completeness. Therefore, when he writes to seven churches, it's representative of the whole. And these messages that are in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation still have value for the church today. They're still active and living. And thus we see in all of the seven letters, he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says that in all to all seven churches. And therein he then lays before them a prophetic message that I believe brings into view a future hope for the church with each of the seven churches. And here's some examples. To Ephesus, he laid before them a promise to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. A future event that the church can hold on to and say, that's a future hope for the overcomer in Christ. Smyrna, he promises to not be hurt by the second death. That would be the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, a future event, something that the church can hold on to as a future hope. Thyatira, he says, promises to be given the, the morning star and to be given a position of authority with him as he rules over the nations with a rod of iron. I believe that's a future event, something the church can hold on to as a future hope for the church. Sardis, he promises that they will be clothed in white and their name will not be erased from the book of life that will be opened at the great white throne judgment. A future event. Something for the church to hold on to. Philadelphia, he promises to them to be a pillar in the temple of God and they'll never come out ever again from it. And they will be marked with three new names. God's name, Jesus' new name and his city's name. And he makes, he makes clear delineation as to what this city is. The new Jerusalem, which we see at the end. A future event. Something for the church to hold on to. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if we were to trace each of these promises that, that are in the first two chapters to the church in chapters two and three, if we were to trace them out and say, where in the prophetic calendar of God's view, where would those things fall? Is it in the middle of Revelation? Is it chapter six? Is it chapter 13? Where, where in the prophetic view? Well, guess what? Everything that you see here on the screen promised to the church happens in chapters 19, 20, and 21 when the Lord returns. And it's also critical to see that the word ecclesia shows up 19 times in, in the first three chapters of Revelation, zero times through chapter 19 and 20, and then all of a sudden, you have a closing reference to the church. Why is this the case? Well, this is my, my belief, is that when the seals begin to open, and God's wrath begins to pour out. I think that's the beginning of Jacob's trouble. The beginning of Daniel's 70th seven. Not intended for the church, 
but intended to move Israel. Thus, we don't hear a lot about the church in the midsection of Revelation. But then, in chapter 19, the promises that were given to the church back when the opening chapters of Revelation began, they find their fulfillment as the marriage supper of the Lamb comes. And He comes, and the church comes with Him. In Revelation 19, 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I believe this is a picture of the church preparing for the, 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 the marriage feast. And then you have Revelation 19, 11, just a few verses later. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire that pierce and see all. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Logos, the Word of God. And the armies, watch this, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following with him on white horses. I believe when the Lord returns, he will come with his church, his bride, dressed in white, along with all of his armies. And they will come and, and bring to culmination this incredible time which he will bring the, the, the return of the king and his reign on this earth. And then at the end of Daniel's 70th 7, as we've been looking at, as the time of the great tribulation is at its pinnacle, and when the believing saints, whether Jew or Gentile, are under attack by this blasphemous world leader, Israel will cry out to the Lord, and the king will return. And as I just stated, the church and his armies following with him. And Revelation 19, 15 says, From his mouth, King Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. The Almighty sounds a lot like Joel. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Just like all the way back in Daniel. Just like in 2 Thessalonians, when the man of lawlessness will, be on, will try to take his throne and utter all these blasphemies. Now, as we read in Revelation about this beast, who in Revelation 13 has the exact same description who will utter boastful things against the Lord and blaspheme the Lord's name. Now and then in Revelation 19, the world leader who will bring these abominations and will make desolate, he will meet his end when the Lord shows up, just like he did back in the prophecies of Daniel, when the Ancient of Days sat on his throne and the Son of Man was presented and a kingdom was established where he will rule forever and ever. And that's where this man of lawlessness comes to his end. And the Lord will strike him down with the breath of his mouth, as Paul said in Second Thessalonians. And the final kingdom of God that Daniel saw millenniums ago will come in its fruition. 
and Satan, the serpent of old, the one who has held the world in his power, as 1 John tells us. He will be bound into a, in a pit for a thousand years in Revelation 22 and 3. Then the Lord Jesus will reign on the earth in that day. And I believe it's a day like no other. For the Lord, Zechariah 14, 9 says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on that nation. We also see that this will be a time period where he will rule righteously. Something that I don't know about you, but I look out at man's attempts to rule and lead people, and I cry out for the Lord to come and, get the, and, and lead because we're no good at it. Sin has marked man in such a way that even in a government with multiple branches and all these people that think they've got you, what do they become? People after power, people after money, people after re-election, people that want to twist and mis misuse things that the Lord has said are holy and right. But this will be a time when the Lord returns, a time of righteousness and just leadership. Something I long for, Isaiah eleven three says, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but he will judge with righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Mark my words, when he sits on his throne, wickedness does not continue. He will deal with it. And I look forward to that day. And then after the thousand years are completed, Revelation paints a picture of Satan being released. He'll again go forth and deceive the nations. And man, once again, will somehow amazingly stumble right back into their old sinful ways. As even though he's demonstrated his great ability to lead, they will fall into rebellion. But then the Lord will deal with them once and for all. And I think that's one of the reasons for that little post-1,000 year. Why? Why do this? Well, we need to see that both us and the angels, that a final, decisive judgment must come down for all times, for all time. And guess what? The rebellion that began in the garden will find its end in Revelation 20 because the serpent who was there in Genesis 3 will be cast forever into the lake of fire. And, if any, and, then, and then we see the Lord on his great white throne going to judge decisively once for all time. The, the, the books will be opened, multiple books, and the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then that will bring in a time when, he, when John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And God will make all things new according to Revelation 21.5. This is an amazing culmination 
of God's incredible story. And you'd say, well, what do we do now? If this is a story, if Joel has it even partially right, or if these, if these prophecies, we know the prophecies are true, if these things that we're reading, these things are going to happen, what do we do now? Well, Peter gives us a little clue. He says, since all these things are to be dealt with and judged, and ultimately this earth as we know it will be destroyed, what sort of people should you be? People holy in conduct and godliness, and get this, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Because we live, uh, we need to live with an understanding that the end is coming. We need to live with the realization that the day uh, is a, today is a time of opportunity. As the writer of Hebrews says, so long as it is called today, don't harden your heart in unbelief. Respond. God's being gracious to the, to the world of mankind right now, extending a very long period, not wishing any to repent, or not wishing any to perish, but come to repentance. And so we should look at this opportunity as a time of grace. But this time will one day come to an end. The opportunity to act in belief is now. The time to persevere in a world that I believe will continue to persecute his saints is now. The time to strengthen our resolve and put our hope in him is today. The time to see his big picture, to read to the end of the book and take confidence in our Savior's return is now. The time to, as Paul stated, encourage one another with these words is today. And as I stated last week, the time to be ready and watchful is right now. If we were to look, Jesus' disciples had a private conversation with them in Matthew 24. They've just heard about how this great temple, Herod's temple, was going to fall. Not a single stone left upon on. And they have, they're like, they then get him alone and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives looking across. And they ask him, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age and all these things you just told us about? And he gives them some directions. He says, see to it that no one misleads you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars See to it that you are not frightened. For those things must take place. But get this, that is not yet the end. Make a note, wars and false Christs are not key marker signs for the end coming at hand. But he then goes on and gives them things that are. He then says, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, Luke adds, pestilence. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will de deliver you over to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And he goes on and he tells them, if you see one standing in that place with the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand what Daniel said, then you, if you're in Judea in those days, you better run for the hills and get away because there will be a time given to him to run its course. Uh, and he goes on, then he concludes. He says, now then, 
my, my disciples, learn from the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know something. You know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, I believe that we've been living through a time where there's a pretty good birth pang. I don't know how many birth pangs there will be. I don't know if it could be another 50 years, 100 years. I'm not, there's no way for me to do it because not even the sun knows the day or the hour, it says. But I do know that whether it happens in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime or the generation after that, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, his feet will stand upon this earth. And all of his enemies will be crushed. And the final enemy that it says will be dealt with at the conclusion of this whole grand story is death because it hangs still as a veil over the nations. Paul said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And as John concluded in Revelation, as he saw the Lord on his throne, it says, he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There, were, there, were no longer any, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the, and the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night and they will have, not, have any need of the light of lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. He who testifies of these things, in verse 20, he says, yes, I am coming quickly. That's in red ink in the Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we look forward to your return. We want to be the first people to say well, we don't have all this figured out. These prophecies that you've peppered throughout your word, there's a lot of things to read. And it's difficult for me as I've tried to figure out over this last week how in the world can I somehow in 30 to 40 minutes take us through this very incredible picture. And Lord, I'm sure I have some errors. There's no question about it. That I don't have it figured out. Nor, and we want to acknowledge that before you. But we also want to be people that are willing to read the end of the book, to not be afraid of it, to realize that you promise blessing on those who read the prophecy of Revelation and that we can learn and glean from it. And we can hold on to future hopes. We will not be destined for wrath, that we will be spared from the second death, 
that we will have a name written on us, your name and the name of your new city. And Lord, we will dwell as pillars in your temple forever because that's our end and what we look forward to. We ask you to come. We ask you to come quickly and put an end to the death and decay that runs its course in the animals and in the humans, the beings that we see, and bring an end to these desolations that will one day come on the earth and bring bring into being your final kingdom. Or may your will be done and your kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.